Well, good morning again. Um, I think I'm going to start with a word of pastoral comfort uh, for football fans. Um, you need that this morning? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, I was 16 when I first had my heart broken by uh, the England football team when Maradona punched in the goal, uh, and I've never got over it, in truth. Um, I remember about six years ago, those of you who remember Matt Rolf when he was here, very into football. There was a bunch of us really into football. And Matt, with all the enthusiasm of youth and none of the scars that I carry, was waxing lyrical about how he really felt England had a great chance at this particular tournament. And I said to him, Matt, I said, I admire your hope, but my experience is they'll find a new way to break your heart every single tournament. And uh, I think those words were prophetic, really. Uh, they continue to be true. Well, um, ah, the, the important thing to remember is it doesn't really matter. Okay, that, that is, that's what I tell myself when Watford lose. I have plenty of practice, maybe more this afternoon when they play. It doesn't really matter. Uh, just remind yourself of that when they lose. And of course, when they win, it's so, it's so much more significant. Uh, and we are going to come to something far more significant now as we look at the scriptures and uh, we think about Jesus as the hope of the wealthy. And um, during this sermon, I'm going to make a suggestion, you don't have to do it, there's no pressure, and you may not have brought your purse or your wallet with you, but just as a sort of expression of openness to what the scriptures have to say, I've brought my wallet up with me and I encourage you to bring yours out. Martin Luther said once uh, that there are three conversions in the Christian life. One is the conversion of the mind, one is the conversion of the heart, and the last one is the conversion of the wallet. And my pastoral experience is there's a lot of people who got stalled between step two and step three. And that's a great shame. It's an enormous missed opportunity. So if you've got your wallet with you or your purse, can I encourage you, just get it out, have it in front of you, hold it in your hands as we look at the scriptures and think about Jesus, the hope of the wealthy. Um, there are two groups that visit Jesus uh, in, um, uh, in his infancy. There are the shepherds and the wise men or the magi or kings. And um, there's a lot of discussion about who these magi were. They're sort of quite mysterious figures. But I don't think there's any doubt that what Luke is doing is he is contrasting two extremes of society. On the one hand, you've got shepherds. Shepherds in the ancient world were the lowest of the low. They were very low social status people. On the other hand, you've got these magi who were able to give very costly gifts. They represent high social status people. They are well-educated, they have power and they have money. And so Luke is, if you like, presenting Jesus as the answer to both of these groups. The poor on the one hand and the rich on the other. And this evening we'll be thinking about how Jesus meets the needs of the poor. But I want to suggest to you he also addresses the plight of the wealthy. And you might be thinking, the plight of the wealthy? In what way do the wealthy suffer a plight? We think about the plight of the poor. What about the plight of the wealthy? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about the spiritual danger 
that is associated with wealth. And the truth is, these are issues of spiritual life and death. There are plenty of people occupying our churches who are converted in their mind and converted in their hearts, maybe even, but it hasn't filtered through to their giving, to their generosity, to their wealth. Billy Graham used to say, if you give, give me somebody's checkbook, I'll tell you whether they're a Christian or not. Can I have the next slide up, please? So here are these high social status people that come to worship Jesus. Well, let's ask the question, who is the wealthy? Who are they? Uh, you might be thinking, am I wealthy or am I not wealthy? And not many of us instinctively feel wealthy. Could I have the next slide, please? Um, I, I don't feel particularly wealthy. You can always think of somebody who's got more money than you, can't you? And um, we tend to assume we're not particularly wealthy. Well, I did a little bit of research. The average UK salary, these are figures um, either directly from the Office of National Statistics or uh, as a, come up with as a result of research on what they say. The average UK salary, if you're in work, is 31,285. I think we can probably say that around here it's likely to be higher than that. But if, like me, you earn more than that, then you're already well on the way. And, and this is in UK terms, of course. It gets complicated when you start trying to compare wealth, say, between here and uh, poorer nations of the world, because you've got to do a comparison between living costs and income. But let's just assume that, generally speaking, if you're in the UK, that's a pretty good start, OK? And the average UK salary is 31,000. Now, I suspect, for some of you, that seems like quite a lot. And then for others, you're wondering how on earth somebody could live on that income. It would be very, very difficult to live anywhere around here if that was your income and you were living on your own. Um, most of that would get gobbled up on taking, uh, renting, you know, a one-bedroom flat, wouldn't it? Then let's talk about how much money you've got available to you, how much liquid money. This is just savings we're talking about here. And it is difficult, you'll forgive me, everybody's personal circumstances are very complicated, but I'm just trying to give rough indications with some basic figures. So, um, the average amount of money in a person's account, if you do it as a mean, that is if you add up all the money that's in savings and divide it across the nation, is 76,000. That seems like quite a lot, doesn't it? 76,000 is the average mean. However, if you calculate the average a different way, using what's called the median, which is just looking at the midpoint, if you, take, if you, go, if you go from 0 to 100 and you take the people right in the middle, those people have 12,000 pounds available to them. Now, what does that mean? What it means is this, and if I haven't explained that very well, you'll forgive me. What it means, no pun intended, is that the figures are skewed by a small number of people right at the extreme who have a huge amount. 
So when you calculate it as a straight average, it comes out quite high, 76,000. Now I'd imagine there's not all that many of us here who've got 76,000 in savings, but there'll be some probably, if we're a reflection of society as a whole, who would think, I'm glad I've got an awful lot more than that. But the, the average person, if you like, rather than the average amount, the average person has 12,000. Now that makes them quite vulnerable, and that's the average person. You imagine as we go into this period of poverty, if you're in the, at the bottom end of that, you've got almost nothing in savings and a low income, you're very vulnerable indeed. So there's a bit of an indication, who's wealthy? I would suggest if your income is above average, which would be true for most of us, given that that's a UK average and living in the UK is pretty good, and you've got some reasonable amount of savings, in broad terms you're wealthy. And then obviously if it goes on above that, you're very wealthy. And that's without looking at the resources that you might have tied up in property and all that kind of stuff. Who is wealthy? You'll have to decide for yourself, but maybe there's some indications there, but I'm putting my hand up. I'm wealthy. Even Baptist ministers can be wealthy. And, um, and so what does the Bible say is the plight of the wealthy? And this might be surprising to you. Next slide, please. Jesus has a, a, a conversation with a rich man. It's called, he's called the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler says to Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says to him, well, you know the law. You've got to obey the Ten Commandments, basically. And the young man says, I have. Now, I wonder, but anyway, he, he claims he's obeyed the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, oh, well, there's just one more commandment for you. Jesus, seeing into this man's heart and that he's been trapped by his money, says to him, give away everything you've got. Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And it says the young man went away sad because he couldn't bring himself to do that. It's an extremely challenging passage. The disciples are shocked. And they say to Jesus... You know, um, they, they reflect that shock to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, it is harder for a rich person to be saved than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And people have looked at various ways of working with that metaphor and trying to disarm it. But the truth is, Jesus is saying, it's impossible. Rich people, wealthy people, will inevitably get trapped into the, by the spiritual perils of wealth. They will be enslaved by mammon. Incidentally, that's a picture of a depiction of Mammon there. I don't know if you can see it really clearly, but he's depicted as this uh, fairly overweight and very kind of uh, dominant and arrogant figure. And um, at the back of his throne, there are two skulls symbolizing spiritual death. Uh, there's a picture of somebody being crushed under his very heavy hand, and he sits with pots of cash in his lap. Jesus once described money as mammon. Mammon was a pagan god 
And he said, you can't serve God and mammon. One will crush the life out of you, the other is the source of life. If you make money your God, it'll be a disaster. But Jesus says, it's impossible. Money is too powerful, mammon is too powerful, he'll overwhelm you. And then the disciples say, well, if the rich can't be saved, they've got the same attitude as us, really, that rich people are in a far advantageous position to poor people. They may also have had the belief that if you've got a full wallet, then that's a sign of God's blessing. So if the rich can't be saved, who can be? And Jesus comforts them with these words. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. But if the rich are to be saved, it will only be through the grace of God. In Luke 12, uh, and incidentally in Luke's gospel, G, uh, Luke brings out Jesus' teaching on wealth in particular and on the perils of wealth. He tells this very powerful parable about the rich fool who works and works and works to provide for his retirement and finally reaches the point, having worked himself into the ground, where he's ready to retire, he's got barns full of stuff, and he sits back in satisfaction and says, look at what I have done. I filled my barns up by the skill and acumen, I'm embellishing a little bit, by my skill and my acumen, I took what was given to me and I have made it uh, more and more, and now I can sit back and enjoy retirement. He spent all those years accumulating more and more stuff and he finally feels secure. And Jesus says, God says to that man, you fool. For now your life is required and what have you done? What will you have to show the Lord when you stand before him, when that's what you gave your life to? In Mark 4, we've got the parable of the sower. And one of the things that traps people, we're told, and stops them growing spiritually is the deceitfulness of wealth. In James, now James, channeling the Old Testament prophets, and incidentally, if you are amongst the wealthy, I really advise that you don't read the Old Testament prophets because it will seriously upset you. And James goes full tonto when he takes on the rich and says this, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Make no mistake. If we enrich ourselves at the expense of the poor, God is watching. He's got it all written down. Nothing escaped his attention. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Whoa. Now, don't shoot me. That's what James said, the brother of our Lord. And in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10, Paul, in more measured terms, spells out the dangers that people face as they 
deal with money. He says this, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a pun, by the way. I know it's not particularly funny. I don't think Paul had a particularly good sense of humour, but that is a pun. It's great gain to be contented with what you have. You see the, you see the joke? None of you are laughing. What's wrong with you? Uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a poor joke, but it's brilliant wisdom. There are voices applying every ounce of human acumen to trying to make you discontent with what you have so that you'll buy more, irrespective of whether you can afford it. They are coming down the media at you all the time. Who can claim that they are strong enough to withstand the temptation? Paul says, we brought nothing into the world and you'll take nothing out of it. When you stand before God, all the trappings of life will be taken away and God will look straight into your heart. All your social status, all the respect that people have for you will all be gone. What will be left is what you did with the life that God gave you. Those who, if we have food and clothing, says Paul, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he goes on to say, command those, command those, he says to this young pastor, about his ministry, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to hope, put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of a life that is truly life. This stuff is treacherous. If you let it, it will betray you. It will enslave you. It will trap you into arrogance of believing that the reason you've got it is because you're somehow exceptional. It will trap you into mistreating others so you can get more of it. It will trap you, if you are not careful, into sitting and counting and valuing your life in terms of what you have rather than in who you are. Jesus said, a person's life does not consist of the value of their possessions. This is the plight of the wealthy. And it's far harder to alleviate than the plight of the poor. Next slide, please. In addressing all of this, how is Jesus the hope of the wealthy? Well, first of all, he is an inspiring example, the most inspiring example ever. Paul, in inspiring the church at Corinth to give, says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, that though he was rich and had all the riches of heaven, he became poor so that we might enjoy uh, the riches of heaven, his wealth. Secondly, in John 13, we have this example of Jesus, the Prince of Heaven, 
putting a towel round his waist and washing his disciples' feet. If anyone had the right to be arrogant, it's Jesus. But he sets his face against that arrogance that comes with status. And he makes himself the servant of all. And, and that's brought out again in Philippians 2, where we are told that our attitude should be the same of Jesus Christ, the same as that of Jesus Christ, who though he was the Prince of Heaven, made himself nothing. And finally, in Matthew 25, we are told that every time we give of ourselves generously and personally to the poor, not just chucking money at them for, at a distance to alleviate our guilt, but actually engage ourselves with the poor and give something of our heart as well as what we own to them, we give it to Jesus. And when we hold the poor at some distance from us, we're holding Jesus there too. So much more that we could say this is perhaps the single biggest theme of the whole of the scriptures. Hmm. Next slide, please. Jesus is our example. Secondly, Jesus is our salvation. If you do not feel skewered by the Bible's teaching on this, then you're simply not engaging with it. It skewers all of us. It is not reasonable in its demands. It doesn't say, contrary to what some Christian leaders will teach, that if you give 10% 10, 10 of your income, you can do what you like with the rest. It says every penny you've got is God's. There is not one square inch, says Abraham Kuyper, of this world that God does not proclaim is mine. All your wealth came from him. Your capacity to earn it came from him. Any gifts you've got uh, that, you, uh, that enabled you to earn it came from him. Anything you inherited came from him. Anything you were fortunate enough to get by some other means all came from him and it's all his. He's given it to you to look after for a while. And he has urged you to give it, in the, to use it in a way that honours him. If that doesn't skewer you, then I suggest you're just not doing the spiritual maths. You're deliberately trying to hold this. The Holy Spirit will inevitably come and want to convict all of us on this. But what I do want to say is that the cross says that if you're prepared to admit your brokenness and if you're prepared to have your pride crushed, as the hymn says, when I survey the wondrous cross, I pour contempt on all my pride. Then you can know God's forgiveness for all your selfishness, all your meanness. This is the place where Christ in his brokenness and agony dethroned mammon, broke his power. If you'll kneel before the cross and push away your arrogance and push away your self-confidence and push away your sense that, uh, like Nebuchadnezzar, look what I have built by my own wisdom, God wasn't too impressed with that, by the way. He struck Nebuchadnezzar mad. Reduced him to going around in the fields like a beast on all fours as a symbol forever of what will God will do to the proud. To those who believe that what they enjoy in life is a result of their own brilliance and competence. But if you will kneel before the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I'm exposed and laid down, 
bear by this teaching. I am one who has been captured spiritually by the forces of this world, the evil forces of mammon, then Jesus can shatter that spiritual power in your life. He will forgive every failure, past, present and future. See, the message sometimes that comes across is the price you pay for being wealthy is you've just got to carry a certain amount of guilt and you alleviate that by chucking a few months, you know, some money at charity. That is not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel says your plight is far worse, but the saviour is far greater. And the first thing then we need to do is put our guilt away. Jesus has dealt with that. And do what the wise men did, worship. Worship. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. This is what true humanity is. Not to grab as much as you can get, but to bless as many as you can. So Jesus is our example, he is also our salvation. And thirdly, he is our energy, he is our vision. Next slide, please. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, he is now in a position to offer us eternal life, the joy of the gospel, but he also offers us life in all its fullness now. He can now bestow the Holy Spirit upon us and totally transform our way of thinking. So instead of thinking, like uh, having our thinking conform to this world and all the things I can get and grab for myself and trying to establish myself and be self-actualized and all that stuff. Instead of that, we begin to see the opportunity to be like Jesus and the opportunity to invest in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, do not invest in this world, but invest in the kingdom of God. In this world, any invest, the best investment you can make here is risky. And even if it pays off, all it gives you is more, more zeros in your bank account. It doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day. But if you invest in the kingdom of God by using and investing what you have to the blessing of others, then when you stand before God, you'll have a whole load of stuff to show him. And we're told that God will reward you for it. Jesus said, no thief can get in and steal what you have invested. No pension fund in heaven gets raided. If you invest in the kingdom of God, that is a cast iron investment and the interest rate far exceeds what you could get in this lifetime. See, once you start to get a picture of who Jesus is and you're worshipping him, the op- your ambitions will change. What ambitions can we stimulate for what we could give and how we could bless others? We start to have a thirst for God's kingdom of justice and generosity. There's a lot of Christian books available But I've always found it quite hard to find a really good one. Sorry, I realise that mixed up in my notes are Charlie's notes for the next service. 
Once, when Peter and Nodding were still here, he'd left his notes on the lectern, and I was leading the service, and I walked off with them. Uh, and it was a second service, so I left during the sermon because I'd already heard it, and I had his notes upstairs, and he had to preach it from memory. And some people said it was the best sermon he'd ever preached. No, that's a joke. They didn't say that. That was just a joke. Uh, but I did walk off with his notes, so I don't do that to Charlie. When we have a vision of the resurrection, and when the Spirit grabs us, there is the chance for a life that is far better, far more fruitful, far more joyful than one that is marked by simply trying to get what I can. This is a life of joy. May all your ambitions be renewed. I wish there was a Christian book I could say, just go and read this. Phil has told me he will email me the best books on Christian giving. Why not make it a New Year's resolution? To think seriously about your finances. See, you can walk away from this sermon and feel challenged for 15 minutes and do nothing about it. This is about hard choices. I will put on my blog and maybe send around an email some suggestions of books that you might like to read. You do have to be a bit careful. There's dragons out there on this. There's a lot of Christian teaching that is not very helpful. But I'll try and point you in the direction of some helpful stuff. Maybe make it a New Year's resolution. Do you know what? I have got a vision of Jesus. I do worship him. I want salvation to extend to this. So that when I stand before God one day, he'll be pleased with what I did, with what he gave me. Bless you.